Hello and welcome to the JOD Entertainment Podcast with me, Jacqueline Lee Elliott. Today's guest is Glenn Hawke. With a career spanning more than 20 years, Glenn has established himself as one of Australia's leading sports announcers, presenters and masters of ceremony. He has worked at a diverse range of national and international events covering many different sports. And this is a voice in sport that many of you will be familiar with. I have worked with Glenn for many years now, and he is with me today to discuss some of the great events he's been able to work on and what a treat this will be. Let's bring him in, Mr. Glenn Hawk. Hawkey, how are you? Hello. Copy testing one, two, three. <laughs> how are you? Look at this. Look at this. Look at you, Mr. Professional, with your in ears in. This is what you do when you're an announcer and you can't get any announcing work. You just set up your own. <laughs> it, right? <laughs> I love it. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad. I'm just... So, all right, shall we get started? Look, let's just do it, eh? You've had a huge career already with over 20 years experience. How did you get into the world of MC and presenting? Oh, Jack, I was that kid who loved sport and talked too much. So it kind of, uh, those worlds eventually collided and um, and I was able to get a, a dream job in sport, but it... Um, I suppose going back to the very first gig, like I, I wasn't yeah. in the school debating team or I wasn't a performer or anything like that. I, I suppose I just talked a lot and I'd given out a couple of awards at our baseball club presentation night or anything like that. But I, um, my sporting background, for want of a term, was uh, I started in baseball and I played that my entire life. Um, in the mid nineties, there was in the Australia, the old Australian baseball league, the, um, there was a team in Newcastle called the Hunter Eagles. And I remember going along that first night, I was 19 years of age. Um, the very first game, uh, yeah, I was just sitting in the stands with some mates and there was, there were two announcers working that day. There was a, a guy from um, one of the radio stations in Newcastle called Stuart Horn and he did all the, you know, all the ad reads and he had this beautiful radio voice, you know, that, late 80s, early 90s kind of big, strong voice. Then there was another guy who was one of the players' dads who did all the in-game kind of play-by-play stuff. And he was absolutely dreadful. <laughs> and I might have had I might have had a couple of cans on board by this stage, but I, and it was spruiking off to whoever wanted to listen to me among my mates that I could do a better job than this bloke. So as it turned out on the probably the Monday afterwards, a mate of mine who was in the team, word must have got back to him that I was – Mouthing off, I suppose. And he's, so he said, um, look, why don't you give the, uh, give the owner a call about this announcing if you're fair dinkum. So I thought, we'll have a go. And I got his number. I rang him and said, his name was Ray. And I said, g'day, Ray. My name's Glenn Hawke. I um, went to the baseball the other night and, um, look, I, I wouldn't mind having a crack at this announcing job. And he said, yep, no worries. Turn up next week. You've got the job. Oh, wow. Which I don't know said as much about my ability or the, the other guy's lack of ability, but it, um, that, that's literally where I, I fell into it. Um, you know, I love the sport. I got there, you know, it was, it was a classic volunteer role. You get a free entry to the game and a pie and a can of Coke. Yeah. Um, but loved it. And I was just, I was just hooked and I got, I got the chance to uh, work next to a real life radio announcer. So it was just, it, it was amazing. I did that for probably three seasons before, um, before the Hunter Eagles folded. And at that point, I kind of didn't that, – that was kind of it. Yeah, right. And then opportunities kind of rolled on from there, and I've been really – that was that was 25 years ago, Jack. 25 oh, years out. ago. Wow. Um, and you obviously love sports, so you just kind of – something must have clicked in you where you thought, I really like this. I'm going to 
pursue and press on with it. Oh, Jack, as I said, like I was the kid who talked too much and I love sport. Perfect so, Look at this. You know, I used to, you know, I used to sit and watch the cricket on Channel 9 as a kid and listen to the commentators. And I, I suppose I was really taken by sports commentary and never, I don't know, I never really thought, you know, I was a kid growing up in Newcastle. I didn't know how you got to become a, a sports commentator. I, but this opportunity came along where it's, you're not a commentator as such, but it's kind of the, the next best thing. And yeah, and that's kind of where you start and you just kind of build from there, don't you? And it's the people that you meet along the way. And then it's like, oh, are you free to do this? Are you free to do this awards night or 100%. host this event? And, and and it is, it's, it's, and I've said to plenty of people before that particularly in your, when you're starting out, like work gets work. You don't get jobs by putting an ad in the yellow pages. There's probably people here don't remember what yellow pages are, but yeah. um, you know, work gets work. And particularly in these kind of fields, um, in, in stuff that, that you do, and you know this better than I do, and, and any of that kind of performance, creative type spaces, mm-hmm. it's always a case of, oh, do, do you guys know someone who could do this? Or you might have gone somewhere, you know, you might go somewhere and see some great dancers that you need, and that's, and that's your first point where you would go to. You'd go yes. to the people that you know, or the people that you trusted that I need this. And, and, I, and I suppose I've got a lot of my work has come from doing other jobs. Yeah, and people referring you and that's the industry, isn't it? Look, I've been um, a boy who says yes for a long time because it's just, you have to. You have to. Especially in those early days to, to build up that body of work um, to be able to say. And I've been fortunate as well growing up in Newcastle and still live here now that, you know, you're not in that. There's a bit of a, being a small market, well, there's not a, you know, there's not 17 rugby league teams here. There's only one, but there's also not, not a lot of people queuing up for the job as well. So I've yes. been really fortunate that, and I suppose there's a lot of people who start a media career in the regional areas that you get a chance to get a taste of everything. And, you know, I got a chance to, to do announcing for the first time in Newcastle. I did some hosting for the first time in Newcastle by just asking if I could have a crack at it. And that's kind of the power of it as well is just speaking and introducing yourself to people and putting yourself out there. And people appreciate that as well. Yeah. Yeah. You, um, yeah. You have to. You know, particularly early on, you, you have to. And it's scary, but you put yourself out there and people yeah. like that. And in this day and age as well, like it, it's a hell of a lot easier to get yourself out there than what it was 25 years ago. There was no such thing as in the internet and mobile phones 25 years ago, which was a good thing in one sense, but it, but otherwise that, you know, through, you know, Instagram and Facebook and all that sort of stuff, people can create their own, Hey, look at me. This is what I do. Yeah. Um, you know, Instagram feed now feeds now are used professionally to, promote who you are and what you do. And, and that's, look, that's what my, like, I don't have a lot of kind of personal stuff or anything like that on Instagram, but everything that I have is, this is what I do for my job. And it's, you yeah, know. It's your a, portfolio really, isn't yeah, it? For sure, for sure. Yeah. You know, I, I've still got um, somewhere filed away the, um, the video of my first hosting event, the first match day hosting for the Newcastle Knights, which was in 2011, maybe. Wow. But here was this, I'd say, I'll say fresh face for the purpose of the exercise, but a fresh face, very enthusiastic bloke who'd been, I've been working as the announcer for, for a few years, but I was speaking at 47 miles, 47,000 miles an hour. Um, you know, super excited, but I sort of look at that now and go, dude, calm down. Calm down just relax. Let's, yeah. let's just have a chat to the people. We, yeah. So it's, you know, that's, um, it's great that we, we're able to capture this kind of information and these, this vision and an audio now that we can present to other people, as you say, a, a portfolio 
through um, through social media. Yeah, 100%. And you've worked on some major events nationally and internationally, massive events, Rio Olympics, Com Games, Special Olympics, World Games. You did the Com Games twice. What were some of your highlights working at these games? The Com Games in 2006 was probably mm. my first real big event that I'd done. Like pre- previous, um, I'd been working for the Newcastle Knights for a couple of years, um, Newcastle Jets, uh, or Newcastle United as they were known, but primarily just some bits and pieces in Newcastle, which at the time, don't get me wrong, like the first day I did my first game at the Newcastle Knights, I thought I'd made it. Like this is the greatest moment of my life. It's a huge step. It was huge. Um, but I, I kind of, I got, uh, I linked with a company called Great Big Events who Bo mentioned last week who, um, <clears throat> who he's done plenty of work for. And I'd sort of just linked with them and, and I'd done a couple of little, some soccer on the Central Coast with them. And then it transpired that they were doing the Melbourne Commonwealth Games. So I obviously threw my hat in the ring there and um, I was on, I was off. We'll try and get your role. So as it turned out, they said, look, we've got two days at the hockey. Um, will you be able to come down uh, the Friday, do Saturday, Sunday, and then we've got someone else lined up? And I thought, well, that's, you know, brilliant. We'll do that. So it was two things. So firstly, I'm signed up, I'm ready to go, and I get sent. Here are all the team lists for the international hockey tournament. Like, fabulous. Let's have a look at this. Australia, yep, 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 yep. New Zealand, yep, yep, yep. Malaysia, wow. There, there were names kind of this long, and it's like first name, last name, their mother's name, the suburb they were live, they grew up in, and like these names this long. And I just had this moment of, oh, I'm just the kid from Newcastle who does the nights, and I, there's no way in the world I'm going to be able to do this. So, wow. Fortunately, they helped you along. You get a chance to chat to managers and and whatnot. But as it turned out, I went down there for the, the rehearsal day, and at the end of day one, um, the press manager came in and said, "Look, there's been a bit of a change of plans." And I'm thinking, "I'm I'm on the plane tonight." <laughs> and she said, "Look, we've had to shuffle a few things around. Would you be able to stay for the whole tournament, ten days?" And I went, "Yep." Yep, no problems, I'll do that. And then quickly jumped on the phone to my employer at that stage and went, yeah, um, any chance I can stay for a week? You got any dramas with that? And, and fortunately, they um they said that it was all fine and uh, I was able to do that, including the, the women's gold medal match and medal ceremony and, and the like. So it was, um, yeah, what's that, 14 years ago? Something like that, 15 years ago. Um, big events like that have been amazing. And I bet you grew a lot in those 10 days, being oh, one of the first major events. Yeah, learned a huge amount in that time where previously I would do a footy game every second week. Now all of a sudden you're doing, and there's usually two announcers and you might do um, a game about, there might be up to six games in a day, or you do, you know, two games, two games off, two games. Um, so you did, you did a lot in a really short amount of time. So I think there might have been, I don't know, 50 games all up, which I might have done 25 of them. So every every time you do stuff, every time you, you turn the microphone on and do an event as a, an announcer or host, you know, you're still learning and getting better, hopefully, every time you do it. So to be able to do that much announcing in a short amount of time was, was amazing. And, you know, you, you always evolve. And, and it was probably the first chance I'd had to work with another announcer, like a guy from... Um, uh, Jonathan Fogarty, who still does announcing in in Brisbane now. So it was a chance for me, because a lot of stuff that I do, even today, like I, people sort of say, well, why do you announce like that? Or why do you say things like that? Well, it's just kind of what you do. A lot of it is, is self-taught and there's 
very few times does someone say, actually, you know what, you need to say it like this. So I've learned so much just from listening to other announcers or commentators or presenters or anything like that. You kind of, you're always sort of thinking, well, that, that sounded really good. I, maybe I need to go in that direction or otherwise, or the other side is that that sounds rubbish and there's no way in the world. <laughs> but, but you would see that from, um, from a choreography side of things as yes. well. You, you would learn yeah. so much simply from watching. Other yeah. You, you, and you appreciate things. You're like far out. That was amazing. I loved that transition or that pattern or whatever it is. And you're like, that's, and it's kind of um, inspiring and you take it on and we don't take it on and co- you know, copyright it, but you definitely yeah. can yeah. take a little, put a little flavor into what you do as we call it. But yeah, definitely. It's all, yeah, it's definitely about watching people and people that inspire you and, and kind of making it yours really. Yeah. I've, um, particularly from a hosting sense as well. And obviously there's the announcing it's the, the sound element of being an announcer and there's a certain skill set around that and, and what you need to do and to project your voice and all that kind of stuff. But the way you speak as an announcer, sorry, as a, as a host then becomes different to being an announcer. And it was our good little mate, Kylie Ann Haynes, who has been a floor manager for me and directed me for a long time. And going back to that guy in 2011, who was going a million miles an hour and she always said to me, just, you're not an announcer down here. You're a host and you're talking to the fans through the camera. Mm. So you're not down here going like this. It's g'day, Jackie. How are you going? Yeah. I've had a chance to work with a guy called James Sherry in, in cricket a long time. And James has done, he's been in TV and presenting and hosting for many, many years. He was back in Saturday Disney days. He's a really good mate of mine. And I was actually telling him not long ago that he doesn't realize how much I've learned from him simply by me watching what he does. Like he's in terms of that engaging presenter, he, he's fantastic. And, and simply by watching just the little things he'll do. But there was times we would sit working with him at the cricket and he starts with his back to the camera and everyone's freaking out going three, two, why is he not looking at the camera? What's he doing? And he just makes it work. Turns it on. Turns it on. And it's amazing. And I said, I've, I've learned so much from him and, and, and others that I've worked with as well. And you worked in events across Asia as well, including um, the Special Olympics in Abu Dhabi. You're announcer for the volleyball as, but actually, no, let's go back to Rio quickly yes. because that's another huge Rio Olympics. I mean, how long were you over there for? Uh, probably three weeks in the end. I was, um, the hockey's one of the biggest tournaments in, um, as far as participation in the Olympics, um, football, soccer is the biggest. Mm. Uh, and hockey in terms of team sports is probably the next biggest with so many um, countries in, involved. So um, through the preliminary rounds there, they run two pitches, which goes through the first week. Um, at the end of that, they kind of get down to their top eight or whatever it is in the men's and the women's, and, you know, they play the finals through there. So um, for the Rio Olympics, I was I was in the, the B teams and I was on the, the second pitch, but... Look, I could have been there running the oranges out at half time and I would have been more than happy to be there. But, um, Rio was an incredible experience. Like I, I'd never been to South America before and I'd never contemplated going there. Um, but in terms of a cultural experience, it was, yeah, mind blowing. Yeah. The way, the way people live. Um, you know, I experienced and saw favelas for the first time, which is 
you know, kind of the respectfully speaking, it's it's the slums, right? So again, here's this kid from Newcastle rocking into uh, into Rio, and I was the accommodation I had to start with was at Copacabana Beach, and my hotel room looked out at Copacabana Beach. So I'm going, this is this is amazing, right? Um, our venue was 45 minutes to an hour away on two trains. We thought that's okay. That's, that's no problem. We'll, we'll, we'll do that. And there's a group of us who stayed together. So we traveled together each day. But the first day I went there, the uh, first day I got there, we drove out to the, uh, out to the venue and I'm sitting in the front of this car and the traffic was like nothing I'd ever seen. Like just absolute bumper to bumper, um, three lanes either way, but then driving part, you know, you sort of flew over the favelas and think that's interesting looking, but then driving past and seeing how these people live, you know, speak, talking about taking for granted what the world in which we live, right? Yeah. So then we're driving along this ridiculously busy freeway and up ahead, there's kind of a, a gathering of people on the side of the road. So we're kind of getting closer. The, the traffic's kind of just zooming past and as we got closer, we found that it was someone who had died on the side of the road. No way. Now, if this was on the M1 freeway between Newcastle and Sydney, blocked off both ways, you know, you couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. But there was this poor person who had died somehow and was loosely kind of covered up and there was an arm and a leg <laughs> exposed and a couple of police just standing around. So that was kind of, that was kind of our first introduction to it. It was like, this is. It's confronting. We're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. Like it was really confronting. And I suppose the next confronting thing we were told when we got to the venue that day, no one's going to go by train because it's dangerous. And when we got, and there were so many um, guards and police with big guns in the street. Again, we're looking at this going, if we're in, in Sydney and there's police with uh, lots of police and soldiers with big heavy, you know, guns, mm-hmm. Shit's going down and this is not the right place to be. But in a sense, it gave us a sense of security and safety because they were there. Right. So they said, um, no trains. We'll organize buses and whatnot. So we get there the next day and they said, yeah, buses are off. Um, you'll have to catch the train. Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've never been involved in a, a union or a union meeting or anything like this, but it, this is there because our crew was made up of, you know, I'm Australian, there was American, um, some guys from the UK, and then a lot of people from Rio. Mm. And they were like, nah, we're out. And we had DJs who, you know, they don't sell a lot of Apple products over there because it's so expensive. But these DJs had MacBooks and they ran their DJ equipment and they were like, we're out. Anyhow, it turns out too bad. You've got to catch the train. So we've walked from the venue over to the train station and there were, we kind of figured, right, let's go and stand next to the guys with the big guns because they're probably the safest place to be there. And we've turned up and the train's pulled up and there's bullet holes all through the side of the train. Far out. We're thinking, right, this is what we need to get on this train. And we, everyone's backpacks on the front and we're holding hands. The train was packed and we're in this little tight circle with our, we're just kind of cowering together on this ridiculous packed train. Um, basically just shitting ourselves and hoping we can get off it sooner rather than later. But look, fortunately nothing happened. Yeah. Um, 
I did get pickpocketed. The hotel next door to me when I was there as well, uh, a bag was, a backpack was left outside. So they decided to do a controlled explosion of the backpack in case it was a, a bomb. So I'm sitting in my room one night and hearing this huge explosion thinking, well, there we go. This is it. This is how it's going to end. We're going to get blown up in a hotel <laughs> in Rio. Um, fortunately we didn't have to, but you know, there was so many, there were so many experiences like this that I would never have had the chance to do. And we were sitting around the last night that I was there. I was like, what? There was myself and American and, and English, which sounds like the start of a joke, but there were three of us sitting around and we were kind of sitting going, if you knew everything you knew prior to coming that you would see in all this, would you still come? Mm. And to a person were like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. Wow. Because it was, as I said, someone getting paid to do this. Someone else is paying for you to go there. You're seeing, I would never have gone to Rio. Mm. We still would never go to Rio. So that's a really long-winded way of saying the cultural experience was great. In terms of the event, now, hockey is not exactly the national sport of Brazil. To give you an example, like every host country can essentially enter a team in, in every event. That's kind of part of the privilege of hosting Olympics. So the Brazilian hockey team was selected out of a group of about 120 people. There's like 120 people registered to play hockey in all of Brazil. So that's kind of 10 men's senior teams. So that's the equivalent of like A-grade Newcastle hockey. So they put an, a national team in based on that. And it was, you know, they got slaughtered every game. But so that's kind of paints the picture of the importance of hockey there. So I still remember turning up for the first, the day before, and it was, everything was chaotic. And you're walking around the week, because we were there a week before, thinking there's no way in the world are these Olympics going to go ahead. Even the day before, we had an audio desk, we had a microphone, and there were speakers, but nothing was nothing was connected. So we, we were there for rehearsals, and we couldn't rehearse anything because nothing was connected. Wow. And then people were taking equipment from one venue to patch in another. And so we walked, we left the late day before the, um, the first day of competition. So minus one going, there's no chance. Oh, wow. How Miraculously overnight we've turned up the next day and everything just worked somehow. So my first game was actually a game. It was Australia. I can't believe it. I can't remember who they were playing, but it was Australia versus someone. It was the hockey ruse, the women's, and there's no one in the stands. There, there was a group of, sorry, there was a group of Australian fans, probably 50, you know, the mums and dads and boyfriends and whatnot. Mm. And me in the announcer's box. So you're looking around going, well, this is, as terms of an event, I'd certainly done bigger. Right. But the moment that struck me was, you know, the show calls, right? Oh, you, we got the script, we're ready to go. And you push that button and you go, ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to day one of the hockey competition for the 2016 Rio Olympic Games here at Deodora. And you just have that moment of the realisation that, Everything that I've done has got me to this point here today. I've always loved my sport. I've loved watching the Olympics. And regardless of the fact that there was 50 people in the stands or not, I was the announcer at the Rio Olympic Games. And it was it's still, like, it still gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Like it was. What an achievement. It wasn't the track and field and it wasn't the swimming, but it, it was the Olympic Games. It's the pinnacle of sport. And I got, I was somehow got the opportunity to do it. How good. And yeah, you definitely have to take those moments as well. And sometimes you oh. don't 
realize it until you're actually there because you've been so overwhelmed and obviously you were so overwhelmed with, you know, trying to Quite. get from A to B <laughs> yeah. and then you're there on the day, events are, everything's, you know, three, two, one. And then you're like, holy shit, I'm actually doing this. And and you would get this as well, Jack. It goes so quickly. Particularly I was only there for the first week. So once you start, and, and Bo kind of touched on this in your previous episode, is that you're there first thing in the morning, you finish late at night, you get a few hours sleep and you get up and, and do it again. And that's just your routine. Um, and because it was such a distance to travel, we all traveled together. It was just too hard to get back and forward or go by yourself. So even when you weren't working, you, you just hung around there because, so you weren't working, but you weren't, you weren't going to the beach. So they were long days and I deliberately had the chance to just stop and look around. And I remember the last day I went and sat next to the pitch just to have that moment of going, we're going to go home tomorrow, but this is what I've just experienced. Mm. And the most bizarre, and it was the first time I've worked in a tournament like this where I didn't go through to the end. And I still remember I, I got back to Newcastle, got back home, turned the telly on. Funnily, funnily enough, the Olympics were on and the triathlon was on at Copacabana Beach and these bikes are going past the hotel where I was staying. So you can't, you start, the whirlwind happens, you're on the plane, you come home, you sit down and back in little old Newcastle again and there's there's the you were just there where you where you were and it yeah it, it goes like that it does it does and it's definitely we get so busy which we talk about all the time yeah. that yeah you do forget to remember the body of work mm. and how you got there and what, what you've just achieved and yeah that's massive massive as would be the the Special Olympics in Abu Dhabi that would yeah. have been another huge that was with the volleyball is that right yeah huge for a couple of reasons um I'd never been to Abu Dhabi before. And that's just a whole, if everyone, anyone hasn't been there, it's just a whole different world. Yes. And it's hard to even explain it, but it ain't Newcastle. <laughs> it's a long, it's a long way from it. And, you know, the cultural differences there and, um, you know, the, just in terms of what you have to wear. Yeah. The respect that we, that we as visitors uh, need to show to their, to their cultural needs, I suppose. Hmm. Um, and again, that's just sort of one of the great things about getting those opportunities to experience that. Would have I ever, ever gone to Abu Dhabi? Well, probably not. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gave me the chance to do it. So again, just to be able to be there and experience that was, was amazing. Um, also in terms of the work in the Special Olympics, I have a 14 year old son with autism. Yes. Um, so to be able to go and work on an event, um, that gave, that not just gives opportunities to people with disability, but puts them up on a pedestal was, was amazing. And there's all different classifications of, um, the Special Olympics and, and for the Special Olympics, oh, someone might correct me here, but I believe it's just for people with, or the what I worked on was people with intellectual disability. So able-bodied, but, and, and there's obviously a, a varying degrees of, um, but just to see, the smiles on the faces of these athletes was some of the most beautiful things. Like it was just sport at its purest where people just played the game and represented their country because they loved it. Yeah. And a couple of little moments that, that I remember, and it wasn't because of incredible feats. There was, I can't even remember the team, but there was one 
little guy, and he was only a teenager who was competing for this side, for this team, and somehow caught the eye, or our floor manager caught the eye of him. And this young bloke was besotted, absolutely besotted. So he's there on the volleyball court, and she's over there, and the game's going. (laughs) (laughs) He's watching her. The game's going by, and he's watching Steph on the sideline. And so it was it was beautiful just to watch that. And there was another young girl there. She, on the same team, and I, I wish I knew what team it was, but on the same team, she would go out on the court and she would plonk her feet right at the net. She had the biggest smile on her face and she'd stand like this. And unless the ball hit her on the arms, she wasn't hitting that ball <laughs> for love or money. She's locked in. That was it. And the ball could have just landed there, right next to her hands, and she'd miss it, but she still had the biggest smile on her face, and all the team got around her. Oh, that is so beautiful. It was it was just so wonderful to see the inclusiveness of it. Like, it, it's it's the games for everyone. It's all about inclusivity. Um, and there was a guy there who used to be... He was an Olympian, and I wish I knew his name again. I should be better at this. He represented the old Yugoslavia in, in volleyball in, like, the 84, 88 Olympics. Huge. As you imagine, an indoor volleyball, a huge man. And he's now an ambassador for the, the Special Olympics, and he's he'd won gold medals at Olympics. He'd represented his country many, many times. But I got a chance to interview him, interview him and he spoke about how his Olympic career paled into insignificance when he put it next to the work he does as an ambassador for the Special Olympics and what that does for people. It was, oh. yeah, it was, as ever, so many reasons and a few personal ones. It was, it was amazing. One for the books, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it was great. I mean, you've done so much and we're not even halfway through this little, <laughs> this little list of yours that you sent through to me. Um, so look, moving on to football, extensive announcing experience in football at both national and international level um, over a 12 year period up to 2019, ground announcing at many matches featuring the Socceroos, uh, international fixtures at Sydney's ANZ Stadium featuring Manchester, United, Arsenal, Chelsea, Tottenham, Hotspurs, Liverpool. What huge, it's blown me away just reading all of this. But what are some of the standout games that you got to call? Yeah, with the football, anything to do with the Socceroos is always great just to be part of those international fixtures. Um, I was in the United ANZ Stadium when they made it through to the, the 2018, 18, 16 World Cup. Um, but the couple of matches where international teams have come out, two in particular, was um, when LA Galaxy came and played against Sydney FC. And it was not long after David Beckham had joined LA Galaxy. Mm-hmm. So David Beckham has come to town. There was 83,000 people there to watch David Beckham play. Yeah, wow. Um, so that was, so to have the opportunity to work at that one was was incredible. And it, every time he touched the ball, you could see these, back when we had cameras with flashes on it, you could see all these flashes going off. He'd take a corner and in that section of the ground, all these flashes and people would be standing up to watch him. He was just... David Beckham at his prime was an international superstar. So here he was playing football in, in Australia just before half time in that match. And, and, and with the, for those who don't really know, um, ground announcers, ground announcing role, it's, it's not like a commentary role. There's things that you need to do and say, but you don't say anything until your show caller says, 
ready, stand by. Three, two, one, go announce, and you'll say whatever you need to say. Just before halftime, this match, David Beckham is setting up for a, a free kick just outside the um, the 18 yard box, and and this was his bread and butter, right? This is David Beckham is known in football for his set shot. So we're sitting there, and, and I can still picture it. He has hit this ball, he's curled it, put it into the top left corner. And going into this match, you kind of think, imagine if David Beckham gets to score a goal and I get to score. <laughs> so there he is just before half time. He's nailed this. 83,000 people have gone bananas. And my show caller, instead of the standby and announce, ready in three, to, he just turned to me and he said, you know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and it was Goal to the LA Galaxy scored by number three, no, number 23, David Beckham. Oh, how special. And the crowd again just erupted. So that was, and the other one I'll tell you quickly was when, um, when I think it was Sydney FC played Liverpool, uh, a few years ago. Uh, I grew up never a big football, huge football fan, but it was a guy called Craig Johnston who, who grew up in Newcastle who played for Liverpool, and, and he was probably my first real sporting hero. Like, he was a guy from, not quite my neighbourhood, but from Newcastle who'd made it to the big time, won an FA Cup final, and I got to meet him and, and interview him that night. So that was pretty special. But also, before every home game at Liverpool's home games, they sing You Never Walk Alone. And oh, I feel a little bit thinking about this. But again, 83,000 people mostly Liverpool fans. And these are people who, a lot of people who'd supported Liverpool all their life but never had a chance to see them live. So, and, and football fans in it from England, are, EPL fans are just crazy. So passionate. So there's 83,000 people standing, holding up their Liverpool scarves, singing You Never Walk Alone. I had I had the scarf here at one point, but so to hear that, and, and again, it's just goosebumps. Yeah, I've got and, them and right they, now. And they... Um, Liverpool bought out a couple of their uh, match day production people. So they would do that 30 times a year. So we're just blown away. We sort of turned to them and said, like, we're having a little moment here. Do, do you still – is this just another start of the match for you or do you still feel it? And they were like, we could do it 30 times. We could do it 330,000 times. And you still don't lose that moment just before kickoff where a full house sings you'll never walk alone. It was yeah. so powerful. On YouTube, people can look at it. They played, Liverpool played at the MCG a few a couple of years before that. Same thing, 90,000 people there standing singing you'll never, never walk alone. It was amazing. These are the kind of little things that there's so much I've forgotten in terms of the matches in my announcing career, mm. but it's those little moments around it that, that you don't forget. Yeah, I bet. How do you prepare for such large international games like that? Do you ever feel a sense of, I'm sure you would feel a sense of pressure at times. You know what, Jack? And, and, and again, you would understand this is that I worked out really quickly in, in this career is it, it doesn't matter if you're doing a local rugby league grand final in front of 500 people because it's flogging down with rain or you're at the MCG for a World Cup final with 90,000 people, you have to prepare the same. Yes. Uh, because you never know, and, it, and it's the same with, with hosting or presenting. I don't know who's going to watch this podcast, and it doesn't need a million people to watch it, but it just needs one person to watch it and go, 
you know what, I think we could use him doing this. So, and at the same time, if you, and I know people who have lost work on small, because like, I said, that's just a little job, but they've, they haven't prepared properly for it. They've done a shit job because they've just gone, well, that's 50 people there. No one really cares. But you need to prepare, you know, whether it's 50 people or 500,000 people. Absolutely. Um, the biggest thing for me has always been getting the names right. And I like to hope I get them right a lot of the time. There's times you've stuffed them up. Um, but that's the big part of with your announcing role, because it, with, with any match in any pregame, and, and, and you've done plenty with this, Jack, is that with the announcing role, you, there's kind of the ad reads and links between segments and the like, but then there's two moments as, a, as an announcer that you kind of get ready for. And it's funny you talk about that nervous energy. I can, you kind of thinking about it now, you kind of you can feel it. Feel it, right? Yeah. It's the announcement of the team lists and it's the introduction of teams onto the field. The, and the international matches with the bigger audiences and sometimes with names from countries that you've never, ever seen and you have no idea. And there are some times that you're just handed the list late and it's like, we don't have anyone who can help you. You just have to do your best. Oh, so they're the, they're the nervous, they're the really nervous moments. When I went to Rio, we had a, um, a workshop with all these announcers from all around the world. And I work with a guy who was the ground announcer for the San Francisco 49ers. It was a guy there who spoke to us. He'd been at every Olympics since 1980, summer and winter. And all these people with these big booming voices from all these incredible sporting events. And there was little old me sitting there going, what about this? <laughs> but the guy, this guy who spoke, he, he sort of said, in terms of your preparation, the names is the most important thing you can that you need to do and you have to get it right. And the example he gave us is that you imagine that all these Olympians train their whole lives for this moment. And in the hundred meter sprint, there are, you know, for every Usain Bolt, who's going to win in a world record time, there are literally hundreds of people who go through those preliminary runs to get through to the final. So imagine being runner ranked hundredth, Opening day of the Olympics, he's trained his whole life for, and he's finally got on this, that Olympic stage. And he's on in lane one, lining up, ready to go. His family and friends are in the stand. He's, this is his moment to shine. And you get up there and you get his name wrong. Mm. Devastation. And he, and he finishes eighth in that race and he's all over. He's lost his race. They couldn't even get his name right. So it, it, it's, to, like it's important for the athlete to, for, those, for those kind of moments, but it's also a respect as well that with all events that you do, people don't ever want to get, you know, you don't want to get your name. Someone tell you, say your name wrong. It doesn't matter if it's Glenn Hawke or whatever. So in terms of preparation for any event, it's really important to get, to get those names right. And I suppose the other thing is that, you know, it's being able to take direction and listen to your show caller and, not make the event about you and speak when spoken to a lot of, speak when asked to speak as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it is a team effort. I just wonder how, how you prepare. I'm going to ask you another, yeah. ask you it again when you, um, when we move on to some of the other codes, but so interested to know how people prepare and it's mentally as well, especially when the turnover is so quick. Yeah. You just want to stay in the moment, don't you? And be present and. Particularly for, 
it can be tough, you know, particularly for longer. Like a rugby league game is, you've, it's easy to kind of break it down and get yourself through it. You know, you've got that. You might have an hour pregame, so it's 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 knowing where you are in the show because mm. no doubt that your ground announcer will be doing the first announcement of the day. You might throw it into the host. You'll have a block, but in that time, so if it's say yeah, so it's, let's say an hour pregame, you'll do some ad reads, some general announcements, but again, building through to that to the, maybe those team lists. So you'll throw down to the host. The host will do bits and pieces in the crowd, but you're not just sort of sitting back waiting for your next bit. It's it's then, particularly if it's teams you don't know, it's it's going through that the phonetics and going through so you know that when when the red light goes on, that you can nail all of those Yeah. Uh, all those segments. So it's always I suppose in those pre game half time segments, it's getting it's being a kind of looking ahead to what's coming up next. So we'll do this bit, knowing that in five minutes time I've then got that bit. So you're spending that five minutes to to go over it, get your head around it. And also, I think the, the other important thing to do is when you're, uh, and I suppose it was something that was taught to me, that when you're preparing to do announcing type work, be it voiceover or announcing, um, don't just say the words in your head because announcing is around, is about, you know, the movement of your mouth and the muscles in your mouth and your tongue and your lips and all those kind of things. So what you might think, you might know how it's supposed to sound in your head, but it's not until you actually spit those words out, and particularly some of these, you know, these words that may be a little bit unfamiliar or names that are unfamiliar. It, it's literally a, a case where you need to get your mouth around those words. Yes. You don't get that by saying it in your head. You have mm-hmm. to go and maybe stand outside and and read them out. Yeah, which you, I've heard you do. I've watched you do it. Hmm. You've broken it down at games that I've worked with you, and. It's part of the job, right? You've got to yeah. be on the ball and getting those names and, and knowing, you know, a lot of the time you get the script. Hopefully you get the script beforehand. So it's, um, and sometimes the scripts that you get aren't perfect. And there's been plenty of times where someone's written a script, you know, sat in front of a laptop and tapped out the words, but have never actually sat there and read it out loud because what, again, what sounds right to read doesn't always translate to sounding right as a spoken word as well. So there's been times where, you know, you're not making wholesale changes because if they're ad reads, there's been a lot of people who've come before me to make sure those hundred words are right. But if it's something that doesn't sound right or needs to be tweaked, tweaked, but also writing stuff in your notes as well that, you know, where the, where the pauses are, where the inflections are, where the, where you need to start and, so it's kind of putting those, um, you know, markups on your script. So when, when you come to it, you know that you need to take it up there or you need to finish it here or you need to have a pause there or, or whatnot. So it's, again, getting in front of it so you're not picking up cold because once it's very unforgiving when you turn the microphone on and you start reading and you bumble over it, like you can't say, shit, sorry, can I start again? <laughs> you have to keep, keep going. Up. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so let's talk yeah. about cricket because you've done a lot in cricket since the summer of 2005 or six. You started. Yeah. yeah. And you've been the Sydney cricket ground announcer at all test one day and T20 international cricket fixtures. Uh, in 2014, 15, you were appointed by Cricket Australia as the ground announcer at all international fixtures around the country and 
Also for the past three summers, you've been the on-field host for Australia's men's and women's one-day international matches. What do you, what do you love most about working in cricket? I, I've done a lot of rugby league. I've done a lot of soccer and I've done a lot of cricket. Difference between those three sports. I never played, I played soccer until I was about seven from six to about seven or eight. I've never played, I love rugby league, never played it. Cricket is a game I grew up playing. Now I, I played through to I was a teenager. So I was, I was no superstar, I can assure you, but it, it was the game that I, I loved. I, I was that kid when my old house in Belmont North, we had a pool out the back in the middle of summer and there'd be all the kids in the neighborhood swimming in the pool and I'd be sitting in the lounge room watching the test match on ABC, right? I, I just have always loved the sport. So, you know, you talk, kind of talk about the, you know, the, the moments that you've made it, right? I got a chance to, um, to work on international cricket. And I still remember getting the call saying, would you be available to work at the SCG? I'm like, yes. I don't care who's playing, but I'm, I'm in. Um, for the Ashes test match in the season of 2005, six. And I still remember, and I've been there so many times since, but I still remember walking up into the old production box in the top of the Brewongle stand, looking down onto the SCG and again, have that moment of, well, this is, this is the greatest moment of my life. Like I, someone's paid me to turn up here today. I'm going to introduce all these, all these heroes of mine that I've watched on the telly for summer after summer, I'm introducing them out onto the field. And it turned out that that my first test match was the last test match for Glenn McGrath, Shane Warne and Justin Langer. Wow. So it was, so every time I introduced coming in from the Paddington end, Glenn McGrath, 40,000 people erupted. So I'm like, how cool is this? Yeah, so, th- so I've been so fortunate to work on cricket since it's been a huge part of my working life. Um, and I've done all the tests at the SCG since 05, 06. Uh, but the appointment by Cricket Australia to do, to travel around the country and, and that was curtailed a bit last year, quite a bit. Um, but it's a sport that I love working on. It's a long day. Yeah. I remember working on the test match. My mate saying, you get to watch every, every ball of the test match. I said, yeah, every single ball. You know, There's when no you go swim, you go and grab a beer. I'm still sitting there. So they can be really long days, but yeah, it, it's something that I really, truly love doing. What are some of the events that you look forward to the most during cricket season? Um, look, I love the test matches. And, and the I, Test cricket is kind is has always and, and remains for the purest. And there's so many memories that I've got from matches at um, at the SCG, doing Boxing Day tests at the MCG. Um, so there's different bits that I really that I remember at the Test match. The shorter formats of the game, which are great, and I love being part of it. My my announcing career starts in started in baseball and was a real upbeat, hypey type role, T20 cricket and, and BBL, it's kind of going back to my roots for that because it's all pump up, hypey, get the crowd excited, huge inflections when you're introduced, players out on the field and the like. Um, but I would struggle to tell you much about those matches. You know, to me, test cricket is fine dining, T20 cricket is have a McDonald's for dinner. You know, you know what you're going to get, it's going to be great, but when it's over, it's over and you, there's not too much to remember about it. But I think, um, you know, those test matches are special to work on. But la- oh, last year, year before, March 2020, when we worked on the the Women's T20 World Cup, is mm-hmm. by far and away 
the probably the greatest sporting event I've ever worked on in my life. Going back from when they announced, 12 months out, they said um, Women's World Cup final is going to be on International Women's Day on the 6th of March, and we, we want 90,000 people. And if we do, we'll create a world record for the most number of people at a sporting event in the world. And a lot of people kind of side mouth like, it's kind of joking, aren't they? I love the ambition that the ICC and Cricket Australia had from the outset, that, w- that we want to put women's sport on this pedestal, not just in Australia, but on the world stage. We want to host it and we want to fill the biggest venue in Australia. Like in terms of ambition, it was incredible. So even 12 months out, you, we knew like it was a gig that we wanted to be part of because we knew it was going to be incredibly special. So the, the 12 months rolls around. Fortunately, I got the, um, I got the gig for it and working on tournament sport as well. Uh, you know, Olympic type stuff, Commonwealth Games, where you're turning up day after day and you get to follow the team's progress through the competition. So it's not like, you know, you turn up this week to do a rugby league game, you turn up again in a fortnight. You're following the fortunes of the teams going through. And there was huge pressure on the Australian women's side to perform because if the reality was if it was uh, England playing India in a final at the MCG, they weren't going to get close to 40,000, let alone... 90,000. So without boring you about the whole tournament, um, it, Australia had such a, a tough tournament, but won their way through to the final. Incredible. So literally the stage was set for what was potentially the biggest sporting event was, could ever have been in the world. Yeah. Would you like me to go on? <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm enjoying listening to the story because Kate, they had major, they had major artists there. Huge. Katy Perry performed for goodness. Katy Perry. I mean, it was just down there. <laughs> and were you just watching this going, this is unbelievable. They just had thrown so much at this event, the opening, and it was truly special to watch and just to you watch. I'm going to get, I may even get a bit emotional when I tell you about this, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to try not to. The day of the day of the match uh, of the final, you know, as you know, the game's not till first ball's not till seven thirty, but we're there at nine o'clock in the morning. So there's a huge build up and there's not a lot to do at different times. So you you know, you're kind of rehearsing, then you're timed out the downtime and the likes. But I remember during the Katy Perry rehearsal. So we get this I'm standing down the side of the field and there's Katy Perry up there. Like international superstar, I'm step front row seat for her rehearsal. And the the girl the girl, the woman who was our on field host, Neve Owens, who's a gorgeous person I was standing on the side of the field with her. It said, International Women's Day. I'm a middle-aged white bloke, right? She's a, a a woman with a young daughter. And I stood there and I said to me, like, tell me, I know what we're doing today is big. But, again, I'm a middle-aged white bloke. Tell me why you think what it means to you. And we're standing on the side, on the side of the MCG on the field and we're just having this moment about, I didn't think I'd ever have a chance to be able to take my daughter to a sporting match like this. And her daughter had the chance, her husband or a partner and a daughter were there. She said, you know, I, as, as a mother of a child, of a, of a young girl, to be able to sit here and go, this could be you one day. Yeah. This is, all these girls out here started out little girls like you playing cricket in parks. And now they're playing on the biggest stage. Dream big. I'm, I'm watching this. I'm listening to Katy Perry. 
and I rang my cousin who's got three daughters who are like eight, six, and four. And they're not, they probably didn't give a shit about cricket, right? But I rang him and said, mate, you, you need to sit your girls down today and watch his pregame show because it's not, forget the cricket. This is about, it's International Women's Day. It's giving all these young girls hopes and dreams to be the next Elise Perry or be the next Elisa Healy and whatnot. So I still remember, I I tears my eyes walking around the field trying to take a comp- comprehending what today was meaning. It was way more than just way more than just a cricket match. Yeah. So I got myself together <laughs> after that. Lance <laughs> having a moment. Oh, I, I was. And so, again, you, you sit up there in, in the MCG and um, you're watching the crowd build. And we're thinking, like, 90,000, can we get 90,000 people? And it's filling and it's filling and it's filling. And everyone's sitting around going, this is – we can do this. Yeah. We can get 90,000 people here. So anyhow, the, the um, we get through that pregame show doing the lineups. And then my next moment was Australia batting first and the two opening batters for Australia um, standing on the sideline and KA's down on the sideline with them. And I still remember, and you know, the, the crowd rises and falls during the match. And part of your role is to rise that crowd in those moments. So the batters cross the, cross the line and it's, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome onto the MCG, the opening batters for Australia, number 77, Elisa Healy and number eight, Beth Mooney. And 80, 90,000 people just erupted. Oh my God. And I'm looking, I'm watching down, and this was the moment for me, is that Elisa Healy is walking around, like walking out there looking around. And then they touch gloves. Fast forward a month later, I listened to an interview with Elisa Healy, and it was on the Howie Games podcast, and Mark Howard said to her, Tell us, like previously, the biggest crowd these girls had played at was 17,000 at the showground for game one of that tournament. But these girls have been playing in front of 500 to 1,000 people their whole careers. There were 90,000 people turning up to watch them play. They weren't a curtain raiser. They weren't there because the boys were on afterwards. They were there because they were watching these girls play. And in this interview, Howie sort of said to her, what, what was it like? And she said, I remember sitting there on the side of the field. She recalled the exact moment. She said, I... I stood on the side of the field with Beth Mooney. We walked across and the ground announcer introduced us and the crowd erupting. And she said, I looked around and thought, I can't, I can't believe where we are. Walking out to bat yep. in front of the 87,000 now, you're leading out the Australian charge in the biggest game. Let's be honest, it's the biggest game of your career now because of what's at stake. Yep. Women's Day, 90,000, the build-up, the fact you nearly weren't there, the fact you'd had a run of outs prior to the tournament. What's that walk out like to bat? when you're used to playing at the most in front of 17,000 and now there's 87, I, I can't imagine it. Well, Moons and I, every time we, um, she's super superstitious. So I, and I'm not really one bit. So, but we have a little routine we do when we go out and she always steps out first and then I walk out. That's probably the only thing I do. I just walk out second. I don't want to ever be first. And um, anyway, so the ground announcer introduced us and I have never heard a roar like that 
in my life. And I turned to Moons and looked at her and I said, oh, how good is this? And we did a little fist bump like we normally do. And we both had huge smiles on our faces. And it was like, for me personally, the nerves just disappeared. To be part of that moment and, understand, and I suppose understanding that the the players, it was part of that moment for those players as well, was incredible. And then I suppose the, the next one, it got to, right, I said, what's this crowd going to be? So with all these preparations of what's the slide going to be? Is it going to be world record? What are we going to play? So it came up that they wanted 90,000. The crowd was 86,174. I'll never forget that number for as long as I live, which was an Australian record. Yeah, wow. So we get to five overs out. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we are part of history here at the MCG. The official crowd for the final is 86,174. And crowd erupted again and it was like we did so much electricity like i can already feel it so much electricity it was like we didn't get the record but it didn't matter looking around and seeing what had been achieved for the sport for the women playing for every girl watching like this is this is the biggest thing we've ever been part of yeah you know we had a we had a catch up with our crew as you kind of do at the end of a long tournament we we had a um we had a beer at the end of it and i a few people were sort of chatted and funnily enough, I got up and said a few words as well, but sort of said to them, like, this is, we will, we will appreciate this better in, as time goes on, where we get a chance to sit and watch these games again. And in 20 years time where they show that Katy Perry was at the MCG and Elisa Healy was opening the bat for Australia and carving up this Indian attack, that we'll sit back and have an idea of the enormity of it. Yeah. And I said to him, you know, we, we, we change lives of people today, and and it sounds a bit traumatic, but it's absolutely true. For all those for all those kids watching and wanted to be part of it and had the dreams like those other kids, it ga- it gave those kids dreams that they could be on the world's biggest stage, yeah. and all the, all the players watching who'd never played in front of crowds anything like that before. It was it was probably the greatest moment in their sporting lives, and we had the chance to be part of it. How special. It was amazing. One for the books. I mean, you could even write a book. You've got so many stories. There's so many events. You could write a book one day. Been yeah, it's, it's been good. Like it's, we can talk about the last eighty months or so because I suppose it's been quite nice to be able to chat. To as you say, when you're doing stuff, you're just doing it. You don't really think too much about. Yeah, if you're on the mouse wheel, you're just running, running, running. And there's been the plenty of times in the last. 12 or 18 months where I've sat around and gone, this could be it. This could be it. I may never have another announcing job again. Right. I'm bloody hope it's not the case. And there's a little bit more hope now. Yeah. But there are a couple of times where I sort of, you know, you try and balance up that, holy shit, my career could end tomorrow with try and balance it up with, well, you know what? If it did, we we did okay. You've done a yeah. You've achieved a lot already. Yeah. However, I don't think that is the case. I feel like there is many, no, no. there's many more things to come. But I know, and I'm exactly, I feel exactly the same sometimes when I've had, you know, we've all had so much time to sit with our thoughts and just think, what's around the corner? Yeah, I suppose the tough thing. Twelve months ago, we we thought we're in the same spot, didn't we? Yeah. You know. We got rugby league back at the back end of last year. It was different. We started this year with great hope and promise. And then 
we all just the rug was pulled out again from under us. I mean, yeah. You know, I think for me as well, last year was a little bit easier because when everything shut down, you weren't missing out on anything, right? It wasn't like someone else was sitting in that chair doing that job that you should be doing um, because no one was doing it. This year, though, was probably a little bit tougher when all the games got moved to Queensland where I'd be sitting at home on a Saturday afternoon and I'd get a, a like an, an appointment reminder on my phone where I put in six months ago the, the schedule for the rugby league at a come up and say, oh, you're supposed to be at McDonald Jones Homes with the Knights versus Manly this afternoon. It's like, oh, I've really got to go and delete all those because I can't have this. I'm exactly, exactly the up. same. Yeah. yeah. But then so, once you move to Queensland and you're listening to people doing those announcing jobs and the cricket was on in Queensland, that, and it's great that these sports could could go on, which is amazing for the players and the game and the and even for the people who had those opportunities in Queensland, but it's, you couldn't help but sit there and go, oh, shit, am I going to get a chance to get back there again? I know. And all of the games get moved to this hub in Queensland and all of these people have had that. It's almost been like a magic round, hasn't it? Every single mm, weekend yeah, yeah. Um, for the NRL. But these people have had so much time to work together. I just want to hope that and it will return. But, yeah, don't forget about us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, I, I, I really get that as well. And, look, there's always that recency bias is it? in plenty of cases that the best person for the job is who's the person who's standing right in front of you. Yeah. And. You like to hope that your your body of work stacks up to the point that they want to want to call you again. God, I hope so. Bloody hope so. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> a bit grim, doesn't it? But, oh um, no, but look, it's been friggin' grim. So you look. know what? You know the thing that I've the thing that I've missed the most in all of this is that you've realised how many people. You know, I, I live in Newcastle and have all my life, but I've done so much work in Sydney, like through rugby league yourself and plenty of others. Um, but cricket, I travel all around Australia. I've had the chance to travel internationally with it and it's all through my work and that's been taken away. So the thing you miss is that you forget that because you spend so many, so much time with these people that you work with, they become friends of yours. And I miss the people. Like yeah. I, I miss catching up with you and the guys at the Sharks and, um, you know, Kay and I worked all around Australia and the world together and we, we haven't been half the time to... attached to the hip just through yeah. work. And it's, and, and you've got mates who live in Adelaide who you might see three or four times a year, but that's three or four times more than some of your family and, and the likes, right? So it, it, all this, it brings you together. So you, you miss that, miss the people. Yeah. And also yeah. miss the moment, being part of those moments as well. It's like, that's the stuff that I've been talking to you about, like being, in those moments that you look back in years later and it comes up on the TV that there's Elisa Healy and Beth Mooney walking out to bat in that world cup final all those years ago. I was like, well, I was, I was there and part of that. Yeah, I know. And I, I'm exactly the same. Um, I was lucky to fly to Brisbane um, in May this year. Yeah for, yeah. for magic round. For magic round. And, you know, no masks, you know, we were just running wild pretty much just mm. what we were doing with yeah. the NRL as well. But, um, little did we know that the end of June, it was all over. Shitsville, again. <laughs> Shitsville. 20th, and the 20th of June it was. That's right. It yeah. was the last game because I was working 
at a, not not hosting, but one of the floor managers at the Parramatta game. And I I remember it was probably on the probably on the Wednesday that it was it all hit the fan again. Sydney was in lockdown, and anyone who'd been in Sydney from the t- Monday the twenty first had to go into quarantine for fourteen days. And I was there, left Sydney or whatever that night. So I'm I'm hours away from being a potential quarantine victim for the second time in my life. Um, yeah, and then it all it all stopped. And even here in Newcastle, we 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 weren't in lockdown like the Greater Sydney area, but there was still the it was almost kind of semi lockdown. We was the inevitable. We knew the inevitable was coming, and there was a sense of caution where people were like, oh, you know, we probably won't go out, or we probably won't do this, or let's not go into the office, or so it was, it wasn't locked down. It's unfair to compare because we weren't. But at the same time, we were, because I couldn't go to Sydney. Like I, I lost work. I, I had a chance to do some hosting work with NRL.com and I, with one of their panel shows. And I got one episode out of four I was supposed to do. And I, I couldn't drive back into you Sydney. You couldn't travel. I know. Talking about the work that you've done quickly in, in the NRL, not quickly because we just can't glaze over it. But... <laughs> Look, you've done, um, you've been a ground announcer for many years, on-field presenter. You've worked on massive events such as mm-hmm. Magic Round, Test Matches, State of Origin, All-Stars, Final Series, Grand Final, and so many other representative matches. Um, you, I, I mean, I've worked with you for so many years as well, and I've watched you work on multiple games every weekend, you know, three games a weekend, for example, and then it's all over. But... I do, I want to, I want to talk about COVID and how it's kind of changed things for you, but I just want to talk quickly about on weekends when in full swing, when we were insanely busy, how did you stay as an announcer? We talked about it briefly um, at the beginning, but how do you stay prepared for a three game weekend announcing as well as sometimes producing some of, for some of the clubs? First thing is, make sure you wear the right polo to the right, right team, right? Don't, bag packed. Don't wear the, um, don't wear the Roosters polo to a South match. I can tell you that's, um, fraught with danger, but, um, I suppose it's, it's still prepare the way you would any, <clears throat> any other week, but there's just more preparation to do. Um, the, and the difference between the hosting and the, um, and the announcing work as well, that it, it, that's a different preparation because the host, the announcing, it's kind of making sure you get the the list right. And, you know, because I've done a lot of rugby league, a lot of the teams look familiar. So I know a lot of the names. So, you know, you have a look through it during the week. If there's anything, any changes or any players I haven't seen before, it's it's some phone calls or messages to, to find out, you know, what the story is. The hosting, though, is a little bit, there's a bit more to it because if you need to talk to, if I'm at a Roosters game and I need to talk to, Anthony Minicello about, um, you know, do a, a match preview. So you, you need to know what, you need to do some digging around about who the Roosters played the weeks before, who's, who's playing well, who's to give that pre-match kind of overview. So you need to, you need to know about the games. And, and I've seen hosts working in sport who get, you know, you get found out pretty quickly if you're working in sport and don't know what you're talking about because yeah. people they're watching, but they've paid money to go to that game and to be, informed and entertained and if you're an announcer oh sorry if you're a host talking to anthony minicello about rugby league and it's a getting those sort of little nuances right with the game because if you're sitting there and um you know a test match 
start of day one, say, and if you said to a former player, so who's winning today? It's like, hey, dickhead, no one's winning on day two of a test match, right? And I've seen, I've seen people who are incredibly good hosts. Like, had the crowd in the palm of their hand, but didn't prepare enough or don't know enough about the game, and you get found out pretty quickly. So, again, it, it just all comes back um, to preparation leading into it. And no, you know, and, and you're right, Jack, there could be, there's weekends where I'll do a Friday night in Newcastle. Um, I'll do a Roosters game on Saturday night at, um, at the cricket ground. And, and, you know, Kyle's and I produce that. So that's a kind of another element that, that we need to do as well. Um, and then I might stay down in Sydney and then do a Sharks game on a Sunday. Mm. Um, the other thing I really love about the, about the announcing job as well is that I work in, I've always worked in PR and comms as well and run my own business. So there's always that level of stress and in terms of, and you know, running a business as well, you clock off in the afternoon or evening or what have you, you don't just put it away. You know, always stuff going through the head and you're always thinking, announcing and hosting, whether you have absolutely nailed the day or you've kicked it up the street, <laughs> when the microphone, thank you and good night, it's all over. You can't change it. Yeah. You can't fix it. You can't make it any better. It is what it is. And your next most important thing is putting in the invoice for it. But, you know, there's, there's stresses involved in it. It's different type of stresses, but when it's finished, it's finished. And I, I, that's, there's a real sense of, ah, when you're doing yeah, jobs, it, it's, it's done and it's accomplished. Hopefully you've done it well and hopefully they ask you to come back next week. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> and look, and it's quite exhausting. You live in Newcastle. You're, on the road a lot and it's time management as well. Like yeah. you said, you run another business. You're an in-demand announcer as well as oh, the moment. <laughs> it will come back. But I think definitely so important to stay prepared and mentally prepared and because they're big days, aren't they? They're big oh, days. You're there before gates. Yeah. You're the rehearsing. challenging thing for me, the most challenging thing is, is, is juggling, if from a work sense is juggling my diff, the different parts of my working life and like it's probably giving away some secrets here but there are times when I'm working at the cricket I'm sitting at a laptop in front of me and I would say to my show caller producer hey, I've, can you keep the eyes on this because I've got to tap this email out or what have you yeah and that creates stress love working at cricket on Saturdays and Sundays because there's no other emails generally come in but it's and I suppose what that it can distract you from being from being present and the most present you can be, um, yes. because it all happens really quickly. And even and look, I've been caught out before when I've a long day at the cricket and you're late in the day and you're trying to get something done while the cricket's going on, and there's a wicket and you haven't seen it, so you've got monitors in front of you, but because you haven't been watching for a couple of overs, so who, you don't even realize who's bowling you don't know who's caught it which batsman was it so you've got to you change your tail real quick. really quickly um to get it you know to be on top of it but that's probably the the, the juggle that we all bite off more than we can chew and chew as hard as we can right that's just absolutely that's just how you get to build up a body of work but there's it, it's not always ideal and there's challenges around it um but that's yeah. Just how we roll, right? Correct. Good fun. Um, COVID's hit and shut shut us down twice now, yeah. and it's wiped bookings and events off our calendars. 
Um, obviously, we've talked about how this has affected so much work, but how have you navigated through this, I guess, second lockdown? Because the first lockdown we went through, everyone stopped, but it was okay because everyone had stopped. How did you, how did you navigate through this year? Remember when we went into lockdown and we had State of Origin coming up in Sydney and it was potentially going to Newcastle? This was a scramble of a week for every single person. Yeah. And I got booked for State of Origin in Newcastle. I know. I was, I was so excited for you. I was, I was pumped. One, because oh. I hadn't been doing much. And the fact that, a, that a, one of the biggest rugby league games would come to, to Newcastle. So I was, and I hadn't done much with the NRL since 2019 because of the way of the world. And I, I was back for three days <laughs> and then was gone again. But that's, been, that's been the story of the last 80 months, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I remembered even getting on the phone because I was trying to organize talent for a live cross yeah. uh, for the star. And I was trying to, and no one from Sydney could really yes. travel to Newcastle. And yeah. I was even trying to find accommodation, but that was non-existent. Yep. We're organizing was, stuff to be delivered to my house. Yeah, I was like, but can I, can can I get this delivered to you? 12 gowns from the star to be delivered to your oh, front door. Yeah. And I'm like, yep, sweet, whatever. And then <laughs> the rug, yep, all over, we're moving to Townsville. Then I had to try and find talent in Townsville. And it was just chaos. That entire mm. week or maybe two weeks of where NRL was being pushed to, that was chaotic. And then... It was chaotic, then there was hope, and then it was just devastating. But what have you kind of taken away from it this second time around? Oh, look, maybe not just the second time around, but the <clears throat> I've been really, really fortunate. Like, I've been working in PR and comms since I was, you know, 20, which is a long time now, Jack. <laughs> and the whole announcing thing started out as a bit of fun, and it's just evolved and just by saying yes, right? And and yeah. hopefully doing a good job and they'll ask you to come back. So I, I've been able to juggle these two sides of my working life where it's meant that I've had to work my ass off for a long time, but I suppose it just gives me I've been so fortunate to be able to do it, right? Mm. Twenty nineteen leading into it, I um you know I, I worked for like five or six rugby league clubs and not all of them full-time, but, you know, I, I worked for probably three or four right through the season. I filled in in a couple of others. Um, I went to – I worked at the Hong Kong Sevens. I went to the Special Olympics in Abu Dhabi. I went to Singapore to work on a the Brazilian football team with some of the biggest names in football. Um, I went to Tokyo to work at a test event for the Tokyo Olympics. I, I, so I did, did four international gigs. I had all this work – in 2019. 2019. Jeez. My former PR work. And, and I got to the point towards, and then I, I got a, um, I got an offer. When we were down in Melbourne for the, the T20 World Cup final, the, the Friday before the final, I got an offer to work at the, the Tokyo Olympics. And that was, and that, that time wasn't just sitting on the second pitch in the B team. That was to do, to be there from a week, a week out to the rehearsals, the whole tournament, gold medal matches. Metal ceremonies, the whole box and dice. And it was paying well. It was brilliant, right? Yeah. So I'm sitting there going, I like, I'm working my ass off here with, with two, these two streams. Do I need to pull back the, like, cause I'm loving this announcing hosting work, right? It's, it's the dream. Yes. 
do I pull back on the PR stuff? Do I employ someone else to do more of that, to give me a chance to focus more on that? So, you know, to take away from that, not being in the moment, to take that stress away from while I'm here in front of a microphone, I don't have to worry about that. And, you know, I, I was on that verge of going all in on the PR, on the um, announcing hosting. We did the World Cup final and a week later, it, it all, it was gone. And not just, and you always kind of, I'd always operated that way because I kind of figured the announcing stuff's going and the hosting stuff's going well. But you know as well as I do, Jack, that it can be a change of management. It can say someone, you know, we don't want a guy hosting. We want a girl hosting or we want that guy's been doing it for a few years. So we want to change it up. And, and like there's so many different variables that can take work away. Yes. But not all of it at the same time. So I've always had it bit of a protection there that had two sides of this business. So the announcing stuff went like from decent money to zero. Yeah. And look, that's, that's not a complaint. That's just how it was because I, I'm so fortunate that I still had this PR stuff and you and I both know, and, and you got hit hard. And I know so many more people who are not just good at their job, who are at the, the best in their field in events, in television, in sport, who went from heaps to nothing. Yes. And it was so it's hard, it was so unfair that, and you're all talking about how do you pivot your business and how do you pivot your life and how do you pivot your work. And It's really when, overwhelming, isn't it? When, when your job is a really specialist job in events and events or television, and you haven't ever needed to pivot or do something else because what's going to stop me from doing this work, a pandemic? Oh, hang on a minute. You know, you, you, there wasn't, and there wasn't need for a backup plan or there wasn't a need to do something else because you're at the top of your game. You're effing awesome at what you do. You're in demand. You don't even time. You don't even have time to think about what other career. There's no need to. No. Had that taken away for so many people was just, it was, it was awful. It was, it was so bad and unfair. And I was at home after all of the shitstorm had happened and everything got moved to different states. All the clients left and went to different states, which was wonderful for them. But we were just stuck here going, holy shit, like what do we do now? It's happened again. I reckon I cried for two weeks straight. Yeah. Um, I had just gone and like leased a warehouse out of the yeah. first lockdown. That's shut. Still, I'm just burning through rent. Yeah. For that place. But I just was so stressed about thinking, what do I do? I don't actually know what to do. Yeah. Because you know, I, I was pretty, I suppose the second time around was easier for me because I, I did what I did the first time. Okay. Mm. That's done. I can't, I can't do anything there, but I've still got this other working part of my life that I just go yeah. on and that was fine. But it, it broke my heart seeing. People like yourselves, people like Kyle's, yeah. people like Bo, who you're all guns at what you do. And it, it's just, it's just so hard seeing wonderful people I care about have all this taken away that you, everyone's worked so hard for. And, you know, we, we our grandparents would talk about, you know, living in the, through the, the depression and 
you know, you'd always hear stories when I'm oh, back in the depression. Was that we're going to be ones talking in 50 years time or back during the pandemic. Yeah. And that's, that, that's, this is a marker in history that not all of us will reflect on nicely, but that's. Yeah. And not like. everyone will, um, not, not all people in their fields that they were thriving in will, will survive as well. No. Unfortunately, some will, um, Look, and the reality is, Jack, that some people will, and, and not not always in the fields that we're in, but the realities are that some businesses and some people will thrive through, yeah. depending on what they do, and others who are very successful. And like even, you know, the little boutique dress shop owned by a, an old lady in a regional area who has no capacity to take things online or, or to pivot a business because she's been owned and run that dress shop for 30 years, and she's not part of a big chain. And then all of a sudden that, she just shuts the doors and that never reopens again. I know. And that's heartbreaking, isn't it? Same. Because I just feel like this time around it was, it's sink or swim pretty much. See you on the other end if you make it through business-wise. Yeah. Um, but if not, like it's just, yeah, it's just hit so many people so hard in so many different ways. And I hope that we all come back thriving and busy, but it's just a rebuild. And I think the anxiety of the rebuild again is really stressful. Yeah. Like I myself watching the the emails come through or the quotes and the events that may may open up, it's it's just the rebuild again that's quite yeah. scary. Many of us in the industry, you work so hard to get to where you are. And now coming back to it, we're we're being faced with the challenge of retendering, which is fine. We all have to tender for things. Yeah. But fighting for the rates in which it should be. But what are your thoughts on this issue? Going back a step to, you know, when you're building up, you know, what, what am I worth? Well, I'm worth whatever someone's willing to pay, right? That's that's the reality of it. But what drives that or what determines that? Well, it, your body of work. Anyone can sit there and talk into a microphone, right? Mm. But do you get someone who has never done it before or do you get someone who's had... 20 years and if there's no right or wrong answer depending on your situation but what you're willing or able to pay the guy who's done nothing should be vastly different to the, the person that you know has had 20 years experience um you know you, you that body of work enables you to create a, a level of value and you know, the, the COVID changed the whole situation because everyone, everyone was bleeding money. So people could only, people could only pay what they could pay. Um, the, the really hard thing is as this is rebuilding and, and not just in my job, but in all sorts of jobs is that it's that balance between working again and, and knowing what your value is and what you're prepared to say yes to and what you're prepared to say no to. And the challenge that we've got, if someone says to me, here's a number, I know it's half of what you got paid last time, but that's what it is. I can say yes and do it for that. I can haggle on the price, but in the end, the number is the number. And if I don't do it for that number, they're not going to go, oh, well, we're not going to have a ground announcement this week because Glenn's not going to do it for that number. There'll, there will always be someone who will do it mm. for less. And then that is the challenge, you know, it's knowing what you, knowing what your value and what your worth is, um, but not 
trying to retire on the next job as well. Um, and, and this is, and the, the, tr- the trouble is that this whole shit fight that we've, we've dealt with, it's just kind of, it's just changed the rules because it's just been a, you know, oh, but that's COVID has been thrown around so many times and you get it. Yeah. But at some point, you know, we've all taken a hit as well. And at some point, you know, and I've had some, um, sporting organizations who have said, you know what, um, we're going to pay you this much. We're going to pay all the crew this much. And that's just how it is. And there are others who have gone, you're back at work doing the job that you've been doing. So we're going to pay you what we've paid you before because we understand that you've done it tough as well. And there's no right or wrong answer here because that club may be in a far different financial situation to the other. Um, you know, there is a, a sense that some of us have to go back to 1995 again, God forbid. But there, there, there has to come to a point as well that you can't say no to everything because you'll end up without any work ever again. But at the same time, you, you know, it's the balance, right? Your body of work and what you've done should be value. There was a guy, same, same, but different, right? There was a guy in Newcastle who um, used to be the, the jingle writer. The 80s and 90s, every every jingle that was on television and radio in Newcastle, this guy wrote the jingle, right? Back when ad jingles were huge. And someone would say to him, how long did it take you to write that jingle? And his answer was always 25 years. Like, what? What do you mean it took 25 years? It doesn't matter how long it took me to put pen and paper, but my professional career of 25 years has got to me this point today that I can produce that for you. Yeah. So you're, not paying, you're not paying for the however long it took me to write it. You're paying for the 25 years experience to get me to the point that we'll write this jingle, that will promote your product and we'll make you money. Thank you so much for spending the afternoon with me. It's been a pleasure. It's been awesome to listen to your stories and your career and all of the phenomenal things that you've done. You should be super proud of yourself because you have a massive body of work and I hope you write a book one day. It's been, I said, I haven't had a chance to talk into microphones very much for um, the last 18 months. So look, it's, it, it's nice to see you first yeah. and foremost. Um, great to chat to you and thanks for giving me the chance to kind of Take a trip down memory lane and probably remembering again what uh, what I can do. Absolutely. And many more things to come. Let's hope so. I look forward to seeing you in person very soon. For sure. And thanks again for today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Glenn Hawk, everyone. That was a super long interview, but so, so good to sit down and chat all things career. So many stories. He's such a wonderful person as well as announcer, MC, host. I really hope that the industry is up and running soon so that all of us can get back to doing what we love. A big shout out to Mark Howard from the podcast, The Howie Games, who let us use that clip when he interviewed Australian cricketer Alyssa Healy. Big shout out to you, Mark. Thank you so much for letting us use that. And guys, that is all from me today. To advertise or to sponsor this podcast, you can head to patreon.com or contact JLD directly via the links in this show. Thank you for tuning in wherever you may be listening from. That is all from me today. Have a wonderful rest of the week and until next time. 